Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, 2 times, and if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. Everybody, welcome back to Black on the Air. It has been a minute. I hope everyone's doing well out there. Man, whew, so much has gone down since the last time we spoke. Um, I hope everybody's staying safe out there, being good. You know, it's funny you have your good days and bad days and all that kind of stuff. This is such a different world we're in right now. So even trying to do this podcast and keep up with it and wonder, you know, what I'm going to do with this is been so different. So I'm going to try to keep doing these episodes, figure out kind of new things to do. Actually, today you're going to hear an interview I did with Ed Gordon, anchor over at BET. It's been there uh, for a while. Ed's been around for a long time. And we talked about his career. This was about a month ago. We had a great conversation. I was going to drop this earlier, but <laughs> everything started happening. It just got lost in the shuffle. So so I hope you enjoy that conversation we have. Of course, it's pre-coronavirus, so we don't mention that at all. So it'll be kind of interesting to hear uh, kind of how we're talking about the world. A world so far away now. But, um, oh man, it's really hard watching these presidential briefings. I don't know if you guys have been watching them, those coronavirus updates. Those are so bizarre. I mean... I don't think I ever feel good after watching those, and yet I watch them. And I have to tell you, it's really because of Trump, you know? He's just ill-suited to lead. He just really is. I mean, all those other people, like Pence, whatever, I could care less about Pence, but he's not Trump, you know? And Fauci, thank God when he speaks, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air. Somebody's just speaking without politics involved. But Trump, he's so freaking thin-skinned. I don't know how he, how did this man ever make it in anything in life, being that thin-skinned? And the way that he lies is such on full-blown display where he tries to act like we weren't alive like a month ago. <laughs> we didn't hear anything. Like we're, all of us are two months old and we had no idea he said or did the things that he does, you know. Trump's lies are so bold. I mean, they're so bold that... um. I think people probably doubt themselves as if what they thought was actually real. I mean, it really is fascinating. And the way he's so petty with the press, I just had enough of that crap. I mean, and the fact that he said he, you know, this is not the time for divisiveness or partisan politics. I mean, his example of that is so ridiculous. But I have to tell you, 
One of the more outrageous things, you know, Trump's been pushing this medication, the hydro, hydro, I can't say what it is. I think you guys know what I'm talking about, right? This treatment that has worked in some uh, small instances, there's anecdotal evidence, but there hasn't been real trials to know what the real effects of it are. It might work, it might not. But Trump, the way that he promotes this is what's worrisome to me. Not the fact that it might be effective. It's because he believes it might be effective because he takes his cue from Fox News. He believes it because he saw it on Fox News. So that's why he thinks it might work. This is crazy making, you guys. Our president relies on Fox News for his daily briefings while barely reading his actual daily briefings. I mean, Fox News should be asking the president, you know, what he knows about things, getting intel from the president. The president, it seems like he gets intel from Fox News. This is one of the things about his presidency that makes me so crazy is uh, his relationship with that organization. This is the man in charge of our country, you guys. And his recommendations come from Fox and Friends. Think about that. I can't even think about it for too long. It just makes me upset. And now we have the election coming up. You know, it's such a, man, it's such a bizarre world right now for this election. Just the way this whole Democratic primary has gone down. Now Bernie... I guess, uh, suspended his campaign. They don't actually quit. They suspend so they can hold on to delegates and that kind of thing, I suppose. And Biden is the, you know, presumptive nominee, I guess, de facto nominee, whatever you want to call it. I don't know how to feel about that. I really don't. I just really don't. I don't, you know, I really don't know if I had an actual candidate this election. I understand why Biden, look, I'm going to vote for Biden. Let me make that clear. Biden has to be Trump. But if I'm not speaking about myself, and the way that, you know, some of the Bernie supporters or some of the people on the far left, the progressive wing of the party are reacting to this. And just Biden's ability to excite the electorate or to get people out. Because at the end of the day, you have to get people out to the polls. They have to get out and vote, right? We'll see what's going to happen, you know. I don't know how, like, okay, you guys remember, I predicted Trump was going to win a couple of years ago based on the economy. Really, that's all it was based on. Now, of course, the economy is... <sighs> I mean, who knows what's going to happen? It's in, you know, part of what really is um, hard to deal with these days is the devastation that is going to happen and is happening for a lot of people who are relying on the type of connectedness that this economy has provided. You know, some of the the gig economy, like drivers, that kind of stuff, people that own restaurants, people that work in restaurants, promoters, people that put on events. I, I just read... Um, this thing in a deadline about all just the showbiz events. These are just showbiz events that were canceled and everything. It's fascinating because the event is canceled. There's people catering those events, people working at those events, there's security for those events. There's all these little jobs and connectedness that just, you know, go away during this thing. And some of those things are just never coming back. And the money from that is never coming back. So I'm very concerned about a lot of people just falling in this weird area of not having a way to make a living. This is very troublesome, you guys. I don't think the government actually is going to be there to help these people out or whatever it is. So um, so how are people going to feel going into this election? What's going to be important to them? I don't even know if the election is going to be the most important thing to people when it comes around. I don't, I, I don't even hear people talking about the election. You barely even see it on Facebook. You know, and I think the Democrats are even going to cancel their um, 
their big uh, national convention or whatever it is. I don't think anybody really cares about that. You know, even when you see Biden on TV, he almost seems like this ghost speaking from a a time in our past or something, or it's a clip, you know. It doesn't seem like, you know, there's energy around this this thing or or any wave of something. So now I'm really confused. I can't say Trump's going to win. I can't say Biden's going to win. I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea how we're all going to feel. How are we all going to feel in July? If we're still sequestered, by the way, in July, we're in a lot of trouble. I hope that doesn't happen. It, it feels to me that some of these numbers are starting to, you know, level out in some places. I'm in California, and thank God, you know, our governor really put his foot down early on. But, you know, the other side of that is the longer this goes on, like I said, the more it really hurts um, these small businesses and people working. So I'm hoping that we can start, you know, getting back to normal as early as June. I, here, here's what I think we should do, especially here in California, at least. I'll speak for my own state. I can't speak for these other places. But seeing what's happening here, if our numbers really level out, there's no reason why they can't start opening businesses, say, at the end of May and just follow the same type of procedures that grocery stores are doing it. Look, if we can do it in grocery stores, we can do it in other stores. We've been trained to social distance at this point. Nobody's shaking hands these days. You know, people are wearing masks, all this stuff. But I think we can learn, like we can have a three-month period where we have a, a social distance but business open period, you know. I think we should start thinking like that. Rather than thinking, how can we get just right back to normal? How can everything be like it was the day before all this happened? I think we should come up with real plans how to gradually do this. But using all the lessons that we've learned in trying to deal with this, I think we're going to need that to kind of gradually get our lives back back to the way it was. Uh, I was texting with a friend of mine today, and they asked, when do you think we're going to get back to normal? I don't know. I think we're going to have a new normal. That's what it feels like. I mean, a year from now, is this all going to be forgotten? <laughs> I mean, that would be very bizarre. I don't think so. I think some industries are fundamentally changing. Some for the better, by the way. I think people teleconferencing with their doctors is a really good idea. Sometimes it's hard for people to get out of the house. You know, transportation isn't easy for everybody. You know, sometimes you don't feel that secure in waiting rooms, like you could get sick or whatever. And um, it, and I know they've been doing this for a while. But I think um, if we really embrace this, I think there's a lot of technology where doctors can diagnose you over video, being able to take your blood pressure remotely, that type of thing, doing even deeper diagnoses and that that sort of thing. That to me is a plus, you know. All the Zooming, and this is what's hilarious, all the family Zooming and FaceTiming thing, it kind of makes you realize. I, I think a lot of people realize, I never talked to my family. Oh my God, why haven't I done this before? Because we always put our family to the side in so many ways. This is a good thing, you know, having the family talk on Zoom and that kind of stuff. This has been such a revelation to how much I, me personally, how much we kind of ignore our family and take it for granted. Guys, you know, if anything, if this thing has taught us to be grateful for the families that we have, good and bad, all families have warts, not saying to be grateful for our great families, you know, we all have our, our issues, you know, and whatever it is, whatever you have, look, here, here's the key, guys. If you want to stay positive, this is my tip to just staying positive, because I think it really is important to try to stay positive. And I don't mean bullshit positive, like trying to trick yourself that you're positive. 
I think it's the things that you that you choose to focus on is this, this is something I've tried to use for a long time, not just now. And it's the simplest thing in the world. Find something in your life. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be family. It might be your current situation. It might be a pet. It might be anything. It can be the smallest thing. Find something to be grateful for. And by the way, if it's your health, that is one of the big ones. You know, find something to be grateful for. Use that feeling of gratitude to fuel your state of well-being. You'll go through tough times. Some things will be harder on some people than for others. I feel like we're all in this together. Man, when I see people just die from this thing, whew, that stuff hits me really hard. Especially, you know, I don't know. It just really hits me hard. But there's always something in all of this that we can find. Everybody has something different. Not everybody has the same thing. If you can find something you can be grateful for, that can be your fuel for well-being. That's all I got. Okay, so like I said, I'll be trying to have some different ideas for guests and that type of thing, maybe do some different things. I'm still in my house, of course. But I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation with Ed Gordon I had about a month ago. He's really a great dude. And uh, there you go. Stay safe. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, as I promised, this is a man I've admired for a long time. He's been on your TV for a couple of decades, I can say. Close to three. Close to three. Damn, you know. Yeah. He's one of those people I like to say who's hiding in plain sight, if you <laughs> will allow me. But um, Weekly with Ed Gordon, you may have seen him. He's, he's been in BT for years in 60 Minutes. He's he's done all kinds of things out there, and he's he's been— uh, the man with the news. And he has a new book called Conversations in Black, which we want to talk about, too. Ed Gordon, welcome to Black on the Thank Air. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you being here. No, my pleasure. And, and we were just saying off air, all these years, we've, yeah. we've not face-to-face it's met crazy. each other. So, yeah. It's crazy. And Good I've been be a here. fan a long time. I mean, Same I used here. to watch you all the time. I always, you know, you were in that uh, traditional tradition of the newsman. Right. Somebody who you... You had instant gravitas, I felt, you know, when you were on the air. I really like that about you. I appreciate man. that. And yeah. considering I was two votes from class yeah. clown in high school, man, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a long always road of so. right, right. Yeah, that's always kind of how it works. So let's start with that. You know, now you're from Detroit, right? Yeah. How did you get into wanting, did, did you want to be a journalist growing up? Initially, or? I wanted to be a lawyer, I thought. Uh-huh. Um, Was your family in there? No, or, no, um, my family, educators, teachers. Right. And I, I thought, you know, like many of us, you watched L.A. Law or Perry Mason. Right, or right, 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 You right. know, the cats were always solving it right. at the end of an hour, right? You got exactly. a suit and you got to be in charge of something. So. Right. I thought that was cool, and then when I went to— And there wasn't uh, a lot of us on TV There was not—well, there wasn't yeah. a lot of us on TV, period, exactly. at that point, right, in the 60s and 70s. Right. But for me, uh, I I always kind of played with mm-hmm. being on the air. I'd be at the lunch table in junior high school, literally pretending mm-hmm. like I was a newscaster, That's but funny. it wasn't a dream, man. I, mm-hmm. I, like most kids my age, thought I'd be Julius Irving or Bruce Lee or somebody oh, like that, man. Julius you know? Irving. Yeah. People yeah. forget about yeah, the impact man. he had, yeah. the doctor. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. one of my professors said to me that he thought I'd be good at this. Mm-hmm. I had taken the LSAT, didn't have a job when I graduated. A buddy of mine who later became a police chief 
What school uh, did you go to? I went to Western Michigan University in okay. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah. You know, and um, we were out in front of his mother's house. This was our job, throwing the baseball. Mm-hmm. For a full summer, man, we get up like we were dedicated to right. throwing that baseball. And I, I said to him, dude, if we don't do something, this is what we're going to be doing for the yeah. next 20 years or so. And so my sure. brother's uh, ex-girlfriend, who wasn't talking to him, but she still liked me, mm-hmm. worked at the public broadcasting affiliate in Detroit. She got me in as an intern, and mm-hmm. it went from there. Wow. And you—, you uh Kind of got into the BT door pretty early on in your career, right? Yeah, I had a very unconventional career. I didn't work in a small market. Yeah. I worked in Detroit. The brother who was hosting the show that I was producing for, they were giving me a shot to do my first story on the air. And again, was very green, didn't mm-hmm. really know what I was doing. He didn't show up one night. He had a little nose problem. And, uh, <laughs> and they needed the host to take over the show, and I was it. Mm-hmm. And so from that point on, I started hosting the show uh-huh. uh, in Detroit. And a friend of mine who was— And did you naturally kind of just roll with that, or were you real nervous I, I did, about but that? I had a lot of help, man. Yeah. I, I, to this day, thank those people at the, mm-hmm. that public broadcasting affiliate in Detroit who nurtured me, who saw something in me. Mm-hmm. You know, we always talk about we owe it to young people, but, I mean, they made my career. I mean, sure. I, I wasn't—I was nervous. I wasn't all that great, you right. know, but they saw something in me. They said, we'll take this little knucklehead and, you know, see what we can do. And I was a young punk who thought I knew everything, right? Right, right, I didn't know anything. But mm-hmm. they really, really took me under their wings. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, my mentor there was John Weatherspoon's brother, Cato Weatherspoon. No and they way. look just alike. That's they're, hilarious. They're funny because they've got a bunch of brothers and, <laughs> and, and siblings. And so— The um, great John Weatherspoon who just yeah, passed who away. who just passed yeah. away. And so for me, I all throughout— had people like that taking me under their wing, seeing something mm-hmm. in me. Uh, the, the sister who was a camera person in Detroit, who was a hustler, she called BET and said, we want to start doing uh, your news stories out of Detroit for BET News, which was fledgling at that time. Yeah. And, it's mostly um, videos, yeah, I think, at that yeah. time. Yeah. And so they had started the news, but they were looking for freelancers. We started mm-hmm. doing their stories out of Detroit. I flew up on my own dime one time, met the people I've been dealing with only on the phone, and said, hey, if ever you're looking for a new anchor, I'm your guy. And there it was. Yeah, so you just put it out there. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what your first big, like, story was or assignment or the thing that you feel really kind of defined where you were going? Uh, You know— it was—it's funny because I really felt that in Detroit before I even got to BET. Mm-hmm. I tell people who, you know, say to me, man, you've talked to all these great people and, you know, were you ever nervous? But I grew up cutting my teeth on the mayor of Detroit, Coleman Young, mm-hmm. who was an irascible brother who was in charge and let yeah. you know it. And he took me under his wing as well. And so I felt like once I got past Coleman Young, man, <laughs> I could do anybody. Well, see, that's those old school politician yeah. days. You know, yeah. they weren't kidding around. No, they were not. And they ran that city, you know, with an iron fist. And so, but again, here was a black man who saw something in me Mm -hmm. and gave me opportunity. When he would invite the big anchors in Detroit, he would invite me. Nice. So, I mean, Johnny Cochran was a mentor of mine over Mm -hmm. the years. Ron Brown, the late uh, Ron Brown, former DNC chair. And I mean, I I have just been blessed along the way to have people kind of see something in me and kind of guide me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And um, from that, that gave you more national prominence. What, what was the first big show that you did then for for BET? 
So I, I mean, it was BET News. Mm-hmm. I started as their Detroit correspondent. And you did it from Detroit, right? Uh, I did the stories from Detroit. But when I became the anchor, we uh-huh. did it from Washington, D.C. at that time. Yeah, right. And so they hired me on. Uh, and, you know, we, we grew. It was a fight uh-huh. because it was an entertainment network. Right. Uh, but Bob Johnson understood the importance of having a news division for his network. He understood uh-huh. the power he would have, quite frankly, personally, to have a news division uh, versus just having an entertainment network. It sure. gave gravitas to him. It gave a platform to politicians when he needed something from them. And so— It's uh, almost his Bloomberg network. <laughs> yeah, 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 in a, in yeah. a real sense, in a mm-hmm. real sense. And so for me, just anchoring that news, and, and now I get the gravity of what it was at that time. I didn't then, you yeah. know, because I have people who literally grew up with me watching me on the news, saying right. to me, hey, man, I never watched the news until you were on. Mm-hmm. We really believed you. You were our Walter Cronkite. And I, you know, I used to shy away from that and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I as I've grown older and grayer, mm-hmm. you know, you can appreciate things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, it means a lot to me to still in some ways be relevant, still out here, still mm-hmm. doing. And so, you know, when people throw you know, tags of legend your way or things like that. You know who you are and you're like, yeah, yeah, you know you're not that. But you're appreciative that you're seen in a certain light. Well, it's significant that when you hold a certain position, especially when you're one of the first, you know, and, you know, it's funny because when I think of you, I think, well, you know, there was a thing, we're old enough to remember, there was a lane of black journalism that a lot of people don't remember, the Chicago Defender, you know, the Sentinel, some of these publications where black people had to get their news. And it seems like what you did at BET was almost kind of a bridge between that and the modern way where people kind of got their news. Like a lot of young people got their news from Jon Stewart. Right, right. <laughs> You know, from right. The Daily Show. Right. You know, people get their news, I think, in different portals now. If you're conservative, you're going to watch Fox. Liberals are going to watch MSNBC, you know. But yours was kind of a bridge to, to, you know, to the past in some ways. Did you ever think of that as as... You're servicing that or you're servicing something else? No, I really, I used to tell people. Because it seemed like it was this something else. Yeah, it was something else, right? right. Because I used to to tell Bob Johnson and and the people that ran the network, look, man, we can't compete with CNN. We don't have the dollars to do that. So what I said was, if CNN is your steak, let BET News be the potato Mm -hmm. to your steak. So you'll have the full meal. Not the gravy? Right. Not the great, not the great. That might run off at some point in time. But, uh, you know, I really felt Mm -hmm. like we could augment and fill in the gaps where white networks weren't telling you certain things. Okay, and was that from an ideological perspective or a cultural perspective? Both. Mm -hmm. Both. And, you know, I knew what was authentic in our community and what wasn't being told, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, or, or glossed over or not covered at all. So I knew we had a lane. Mm-hmm. I knew it was important. I also knew that the persona I had to give had to have some sense of authority and gravitas to it, mm-hmm. even though I'm not that dude at all, right? Everybody mm-hmm. meets me and they straighten up and they're very serious. That's I am funny. not even close to that. <laughs> I've got I've got buddies who say I don't know who that N word is on That's, on the air. Oh, you can say it on my show. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I but, called the president there. <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's because I defy people in a mm-hmm. in a real sense. My mother used to say, you know, I'm too big of a nigga. 
Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, you don't come from Detroit and not understand certain things. I understand right? what you're saying. And so, but I understood what I had to be to be able to walk in a room, right, and be next to yeah. Koppel or be next to Peter Jennings sure. or, you know, whomever was Tom Brokaw and be taken seriously. Yeah. There's the old saying, clothes make the man. I think for many African Americans, it's, our demeanor was the same thing as that, you right. know, in some ways, especially to get that first level of respect, right? But I also knew it was important mm-hmm. for me not to whitewash my demeanor too much, right? Exactly. Well, so, especially the manner of the stories that you're telling and that sort right. of thing. But I don't even, think you ever did that. I, I didn't. I no. didn't, but I was conscious, right? Mm-hmm. So the clothes I wore mm-hmm. were a little slicker than most anchors wore. Like the Steve colors Harvey I wore. Suits, that kind <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because again, that was part of me. It was part of Detroit. Sure. It was part, so I wanted to be as authentic as possible. Right. But I knew how to color it, so to speak, right? So when I went to the White House, I wouldn't wear the Steve Harvey suit. But right. if I went and talked to, to uh, an entertainer, I might give a little bit of flair to what I was doing. So you were consciously aware of that. You were Absolutely. doing that on purpose. Absolutely. That's interesting because, yeah, there was that world of, remember back in the day, Arsenio kind of represented that portal to this different culture that That's right. that people didn't get through the Tonight Show. That's you right. Know, and that sort of thing. And back then, did you have guests on your show on purpose for that type of thing, like the people who you interviewed, or or was it more, I want to be talking to the same people that no. these people are talking so to? So w- what was great about my career and continues to be is that I was able to uh, play in different corners. Mm-hmm. So I had the hard news corner. I had the entertainment corner. I mm-hmm. you know, talked to sports figures, and that was important to me because while I follow politics, I wasn't a wonky political junkie in that Sense. So that sure. would have bored me if that was the only thing mm-hmm. that I did. I love pop culture. Mm-hmm. I love music. So all of these things were important to me, which is why I created conversations with Ed Gordon. And those were the specials, really, that brought me to yeah. national prominence because I was starting to beat Barbara Walters and others mm-hmm. to big interviews and we were breaking news and eventually, you know, it became OJ and then the Tupac right. interview and the mm-hmm. R. Kelly interview and on and on and on. But, you know, we started very early doing conversations. It was a quarterly special. And back then, talking about young people, now black people are covered on Entertainment Tonight and sure. Access Hollywood and mm-hmm. anybody will talk to them on the morning shows and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a one-on-one special. That was not the case in the early 90s, late no, 80s. I remember. Right? People have no idea how things are different. I was lucky to be nominated for an Emmy very early in my career. This is in the early 90s. And um, they used to have, this is absolutely true, they used to have, I think they called it the Friends of the Black Emmy Nominees Dinner. Wow. <laughs> Where everybody <laughs> got to go up and give a speech because they thought that Black people were not going to win the Emmy because it was too stacked against us, you know. And you had the chance to be, to give thanks and stuff like that. I remember talking, I sat next to Natalie Cole, you know, we were talking about this and everything. But, you know, I'm not sure that those things shouldn't continue, right? As you look at the question of diversity now, and Mm -hmm. and remember they had the black Oscars back in the day. Yeah. Because we weren't being nominated at all, so they just created a dinner here. People don't know why Ebony exists, you know, because there was a thing called Life Magazine, which really should have been called White Life. That's exactly right. And so Ebony had to come around, you know, to show black the Image Black, Awards, really. right? You know, which continue, but again, the luster that the Image Awards gets. I, Monique said something to me one day mm-hmm. during an interview that yeah, I greatly appreciate. You're right about the Image Awards. That was a direct clap back at the Emmys yeah. and some of those awards. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, she said to me, mm-hmm. 
while it was fantastic winning an Oscar, I would never give it back. The first time I won an Image Award, mm -hmm. that was when I was most proud of what I was doing because yeah. it was from my people. Mm -hmm. It was the show I watched when I could see people who looked like me. And it, so the whole question of yeah. diversity and awards, I think we ought to start taking a harder look at how those are given out, what they really mean. If I'm an actor, I understand the importance of an Oscar for my career and mm -hmm. my ask at a negotiating table. But for the rest of us, you know, we, we need to start asking, does it really matter that a white organization says that we're great and deserving of? Mm -hmm. I think we put too much credence in that, other than the business side. That I understand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if Omari Hardwick never wins an Emmy for Ghost, does that mean that that character isn't a marvelous <laughs> television character? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I've always felt that many times it's not what people would think of racism that keeps, I'll, I'll say blacks, because I think for us it's a little different mm -hmm. in our lane, out of contention for things and that kind of thing. To me, it's invisibility. That's exactly right. You know, it's that you're just not on the radar. You know, people don't relate to you in the same way. So there has to be something extraordinary about what you do that piques people's interest. And they go, oh, you played a slave. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> or when they used to say, oh, Bet TV, what is that? <laughs> Bet TV, <laughs> you know, They had no idea it was yeah. BET, Black Entertainment right. Television, or the question of, why has it got to be called black? I, I said, know. because they're not brave enough to call CBS the Caucasian Broadcasting System. Exactly. So. Yeah. Or NBC, nothing but Caucasians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I used to call, in fact, um, oh, man, I think I was quoted in the I don't know if I was quoted about this, but I used to get real salty about when um, UPN and WB came about. They would put all the black shows yep. over there to start the networks, you know, and, and the networks, you know, were getting so whitewashed. And I was like, what is this, a nigga night? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. putting it all over here, you know. It's funny how the invisibility factor to me is the biggest thing. But I will say, having a stake in this on that side, I do think it is getting better, even though there are a lot of cries in this and everything, in terms of the importance of having your peers um, applaud your work. Because what it is, people have to remember, this is a peer review thing. It isn't like some hollowed body right. in an ivory tower. That's it really exactly is your right. peers, and the peers are changing. So there is different meaning for the Emmys now than it used to be. Yeah, there is. And yeah. I mean, clearly, and the other awards, you know. clearly we've made some strides. I, yeah. mean, I mean, in the book, we have a chapter called The Medea Dilemma, and uh -huh. we take a look at black representation in the media and in, in news and the whole question of stereotyping mm -hmm. and what we owe one another as African-Americans. And I think what we're seeing is, but we've seen these kind of blips on the radar screen before where mm -hmm. we thought we were, in fact, kind of kicking the door in a little wider, a little wider. Sure. And then we started to see it close again. Mm -hmm. I do think the model, whether you like his art or not, that Tyler Perry has put out in terms mm -hmm. of just sheer ownership is ultimately the way to go, but it isn't realistic for most people because they yeah. don't have the business acumen and we never have the mm -hmm. dollars to start. This is a, a very, very expensive industry oh, to completely. be a part of. Yeah, and it, and, and it, 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 that's a barrier for most mm -hmm. people. Yeah. yeah, I feel it's a combo platter once again. Like for me, from my perspective, there needs to be more people of color in the executive roles Absolutely. at the networks and that sort of thing who are making those overall type of decisions, you know, as well as in the ranks behind the scenes, you know, because I've been behind the scenes so right. much and 
hired people behind the scenes that, you know, doesn't go notice a lot, but it makes a difference over years. Right, you know, right. But unfortunately, side. we've seen a decrease, particularly on the news side, mm-hmm. of those executives, those people that make the ultimate decisions. Well, what's decide going on, on in news? Why like. do you think that's happening in news? I think news has downsized just across the board mm-hmm. um, as an industry, and nothing has changed with the last hired, first fired piece. Mm-hmm. And I think news has found a way to give a, just enough black faces in front of the camera mm-hmm. um, to, to keep people, people quiet, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, keep the rioters down over there. That's funny. But the truth of the matter is, as we've seen, I, I just left Jamel Hill, a uh, mm-hmm. former uh, ESPN anchor. Yep. We right saw what happened Atlantic over now. there, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, even though Stephen A. Smith made a great rebound when Stephen got too big for his britches some years ago, they spanked him. Mm-hmm. And so this sense of being able to really call the shots and keep people quiet mm-hmm. is a, a way – it's window dressing to mm-hmm. a great degree. And that's what they've been able to do. You know, you give Joy Reid a show on Saturday and Sunday, you give Sharpton a show on the weekend, mm-hmm. and, you know, you let Don Lemon out at night, and then, you know— <laughs> You let Don out. Lemon out at night. <laughs> I don't mean that. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's what they, they but, do, and that's no slight to any of those folk no, on the air. believe right? me. No slight to any of those folk on the air, but you're, you're, part of why I never went back, mm-hmm. I got offers, but I was tired of— and again, I'm generalizing, but mm-hmm. a 22-year-old white producer mm-hmm. telling me what the story should be about my community. Right. And I was one of those rabble-rousers from day one anyway. Right, from jump, right. It's funny because <laughs> even at the correspondence dinner that I did, I called MSNBC missing a significant number of black correspondents. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that it, was that was right before they put Joy yeah, Reid in that spot. Yeah. But it's know, still the they case. They fired Melissa Harris Perry. He was keeping it a little too real. Bring one more yeah. in, and Joy has kept it real. But you we well, have to exchange because if you get two, exactly two out of black balance. You know, the network might tip over, That's so you exactly have to make right. sure that you keep black people, the number imbalanced correctly. I, f- I found out at NBC uh, that they were having a meeting of executives, and they were reviewing the new talent, mm-hmm. and they were talking about me, and one of the guys said, yeah, you know, he's good. He's really good. He's a natural, but I think he's too much like Gumble. He'll he'll speak up too much. Too much like Gumble. He'll speak up too much because— you know, for as much as Bryant had a rap of, oh, he's a Tom or he may not do no, this. That wasn't he true. was not that at all. No, that's not true. I mean, Bryant just he didn't wear it on a sleeve, but he was a fighter internally. Yeah, those are and, some of the most and unfair. That's what they didn't want. Those are some of the most unfair accusations I about Bryant Gumble. Bryant Gumble needs to be reassessed by his own community, by the way. You know, it was and it all I think it was all predicated only on the way that he spoke. That's you it. know, because he didn't have some baritone voice coming out, you know, dropping his infinitives or whatever it is, you know. You know, he uh, that was just his way of speaking, you know. But Brian Gumbel was fantastic. And by the way, Absolutely. was the leader in the ratings for years. And, and I, was paired with a white woman, you know, and, <laughs> in, the, in the morning for and America. never deflected right. from standing in a room of his peers right. and saying, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And having come from sports to do that. That's exactly right. Which you were, it was okay, but, you know, brother yeah, in sports. sports. Right. Yeah, you can be an expert in that. But he said, no, motherfuckers, I'm talking, I'm going to go and visit the Pope. I'm going right. to talk to everybody. Right. And I made gonna... the Today Show go to Africa when they had been to Amazing. every other continent. Yeah. And so, you know, as I looked at things like that and I heard things like that, 
he wasn't giving me a compliment like, oh, we got another gumbo. This is great. Right. It was, we might have a black man who's going to say too much. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll live with that. Mm-hmm. I'll live with that. Would you want to be like at a, God, even as I say this, I'm like throwing up in my mouth. You know, is there any kind of other place you might want to be other than where you are right now in terms of reaching a different type of audience? Have you thought about no, that? Not no, not really. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. into trying to make sure that everything I do has a bit of ownership to it for me. Got it. Um, you know, I'll be 60 my next birthday. Uh-huh. So, birthday. you know, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm past some of those things. You know, people sure. will ask I me, yeah. people will ask me, well, do you think you, you know, you, you should have been given this show or that show? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm human. There were times where I felt like I'm better than that guy you just gave that seat to at a network, you mm-hmm. know. I've had a better career than that person. Mm-hmm. But I never got angry about it. I didn't get bitter about it. I, mm-hmm. I You know, sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's any number of things. And if I look at my career, I've had a great career. I've, yeah. I've talked to amazing people. I've had some, you know, headline-making interviews. So what I really have to complain about at the end of the day, could I have been given a seat here or mm-hmm. this anchor chair there? Yeah, probably. Did I deserve it? Well, that's subjective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy with my life at the end of the day. When you see someone like Lester Holt, for example, do you think that's a, a good achievement for— uh, black anchors in America. Uh, although I feel I'm a little salty about it a little bit because I feel it comes at a time when that role is reduced in society yeah. a bit. Um, I think you know? I think Lester. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that those kinds of lighthouse uh, positions mm-hmm. aren't the same They're as they the same. used to be. Right, when it was Dan, but I think and... it's still great to have an African American male, in particular, no mm-hmm. slight to females, but brothers need that kind of right. image to look to. I think he's great, and it's great that he's here every night for people to tune into. Mm-hmm. Is it the same as when Max Robinson? Did it, or when Brian yeah, took over Matt the Today Charles Show? And who's no. the CNN? I can't remember. Bernie the Shaw and Bernie. Shaw. Bernie Shaw. People yeah. forget about Bernie yeah. Shaw. Yeah, and so such a trailblazer. Yeah, or Ed Bradley. Yeah, right? Ed Bradley was fantastic. And well, so, he's in the class by himself. Not so. not the same thing any longer. But you know, positions tend to diminish over years and achievements. Mm-hmm. You know, the first black. This I'm I'm amazed we still talk about the first black whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, fill in the blank. But to a great degree. You know, we have made achievement enough where that first black, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, save the presidency, isn't quite the same as it meant in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. It's interesting because you mentioned Max Robinson. I forgot about Max Robinson. At the time of Max Robinson, and then you think about um, Brian Gumbel's at the same time, you had big reporters like Carol Simpson, you know, at ABC News. You know, it felt like blacks were starting to make an inroad into that lane, you know, and there was— the 90s, all you kind of had was Bernard Shaw in terms yeah. of that national profile. It and, kinda, and Carol it Simpson is an unsung hero. She is. She yeah. was— Gwen Eiffel is another one, I should mention. Gwen Eiffel was another. And mm-hmm. Carol, who did the uh, weekend news for ABC, yeah. was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Her presence, her diction. She was fantastic. Her, you know, she was such a poised woman on the air. Yeah. And so, you know, there again. But that was one of those, okay, we gave you one, blip. right? <laughs> yes, we gave exactly. you the one and you got excited or, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it, one point— you had Gumbel and Max Robinson and Bernie Shaw and Ed Bradley, and you're sitting there thinking, okay, here yeah, we go. It did seem like but a, a moment. you didn't really yeah. get people after that. They had a few correspondents mm-hmm. here and there, Emory King at NBC. I mean, there were people out there, 
but it wasn't that same kind of train rush we had hoped for that, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of people could hop on the locomotive and, and get to the top. We didn't see that in the same way. Yeah. Now it seems like um, the morning shows kind of have, you know, I guess they have, I don't know if diversity is the right word. The, there doesn't seem to be that one person who stands out to me as, you know, the way that Gumble did. Maybe they're positioning Gail King and CBS. I think that, Robin Roberts would be Robin close. Roberts, okay, yeah. Robin Roberts you know, would be She's been there for a long she's time. She's been there for a long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you if you look at uh, the comparison to Stephanopoulos for that show, mm-hmm. I'd say she's equal to George on that show. You know, yeah. George is going to have certain gravitas in political circles. Yeah. And he has another uh, platform. But I would say that she could certainly say she is, you know, um, one of two. Mm-hmm. who are the, the front runners of that show. I think Gail is positioned, uh, say, the last um, month <laughs> or so of, of her fiasco there, you know, to be the lead um, mm-hmm. anchor there. Um, Hoda Kotb is, is there. But I think th- the Today Show has turned into something very interesting. I'm not really sure, not sure what, what that, that division is. is. Yeah, so. Yeah, well, they've had a lot of problems, yep. you know, for a lot of different reasons. Uh over there. Where do you put Oprah in this whole mix? You know, Oprah was kind of in her own lane. She is. Uh, you know, she kind of filled that Phil Donahue kind of lane yeah. uh, in the beginning and kind of created a whole different lane yeah. for, for the type of what I mean by this is who is the black person? I'll say black person as opposed to person that we're trusting right now. Who's going to give us this yeah, thing that's that we're listening to? It's, it's interesting you know? because that's one of the things that, you know, people say to me, and again, I don't take it lightly, that mm-hmm. they say, Ed, we, when you were on, if you told us, we listened. And, yeah. we, and there was a bit of, okay, this has got to be right because Ed is telling that's us. That's exactly right. Um, I don't. people didn't think you were biased in the way that we get biases in right, news right, right now. Yeah. And I worked hard at that. I mean, I was mm-hmm. from that old school. They knew. They didn't question, oh, is he is he black enough? No, that wasn't the question. It was <laughs> just that, okay, he's going to walk that lane and give us the facts, uh-huh. you know, and, and go from there. I don't know. You know, I, I wouldn't even put Oprah in that category, I, you know, because as we found out recently— Oprah, in some corners, rubs some black folk the wrong way, and mm-hmm. they don't see her as that trusted black voice. You know, I, I know Roland has tried to do that, but Roland Martin's delivery of the news doesn't always give that sense of gravitas to some people. Yeah, he wore too many ascots. Yeah. <laughs> I, I told him that was my issue. With Brother, you can't, it's not 1978, you know. <laughs> so, you know, but but Roland's been trying to be front and center um, yeah. for that. I think um, He's a been lot very of, entrepreneurial. He is. It. He mm-hmm. is, absolutely. I like, and, I like and, the, and, and the way to go. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, yeah, this I give the, him a lot of credit for In that, the best yeah. sense of hustler, mm-hmm. Roland Completely. is a hustler and, absolutely. you know, will roll up his sleeves and does and not get sweaty bite his tongue. and does yeah. not bite his tongue. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, I always we always laugh because we're together a lot at different events and all. Mm-hmm. And so people will come up to us and say, oh, it'd be great if the two of you had a show and blah, 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 because that would give us the balance. And I always say, you know, Roland's your crazy uncle at the barbecue, <laughs> and I'm the, the sage uncle you want to come right. get some advice from. that's how you're presenting. Wrongly, it. yeah, yes. wrongly, yes. but that's how you view me. Right, right, um, right, right. But, I, you know, it's interesting because I don't know that we have that. I mean, you know, for mm-hmm. years it was black radio, mm-hmm. but now we're starting, right. you know, Joyner has retired, yeah. and I don't think Steve ever, he was Harvey ever had that. that. Right, right, yeah. so. 
It's interesting. I don't know that we have that anymore. Yeah, that sadly. Is. What role do you think the NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, do you think that's an organization? Well, a lot of people don't even know about this organization. You know. Yeah, I think they lost their way for I, I was a while. Ask about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I I think when it was initiated, it was to really find ways to um, find stronger roles for African Americans, mm-hmm. more jobs, etc. But again, it goes back to that first. Yeah. Right. The first, the first, the first. Breaking the and door I think open. recently they've tried to find that muscle again uh-huh. when they push back against CNN for not having black correspondents covering the elections uh-huh. and, and things of that nature. I think a lot of our organizations, again, something we talk about in the book in terms of leadership, have reached a apex that they're really not sure how to get to the next level. Mm. You know, we, we're kind of bumping our heads against that ceiling, the things that we, we did in the 60s and 70s and early 80s got us to a point. And I think a lot of these organizations, whether they be civil rights or well-meaning like an NABJ, have kind of plateaued and are trying to figure out how do we get past this moment? Mm. How, do, how do we get some of that power back? How do we make sure that, you know, we don't just become – a paycheck away from a corporation walking away from us mm-hmm. and then eliminating our organizations altogether. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things we address in the book with black leadership is, could you survive without corporate support? Mm-hmm. Most of them, even though they, they'd be hard-pressed to really admit it, though we do get into it in the book, mm-hmm. would be hard-pressed to survive yeah. without corporate support. Let's talk about the book. So Conversations in Black. You know, that's what I have every week called Black and Land. <laughs> um, tell me, what is the book? Why, yeah. Where did this come from? Why do you want to have conversations in Black? So I got the idea in 2012, uh-huh. and I started it. I, I thought about all the great conversations I've had with people uh-huh. and how often the conversations, once the camera's red light goes off, really get intriguing and interesting. Sure. The mm-hmm. facade goes down and people right. really kind of talk to you. I said, well, how could I do that and share it with the world, so to speak? I said, man, wouldn't it be great, too, if I could get all of these people in one room? Mm-hmm. But with the, So your book is like a hot mic. Like a hot <laughs> mic. Mm-hmm. And I had hoped in 2012 to start it with a group of leaders and influencers. Okay. Trayvon had just been killed, mm-hmm. Obama, you know, into his second term. Mm-hmm. There was a lot going on at that time. Bill Cosby was one of the people I talked to because mm. I, I started the book then, mm-hmm. was on you his get parade. You when you were talking to <laughs> I me. did not. I drank nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Cosby was in the midst of mm-hmm. his pushback against the community, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of people that we were talking to. I got a television project. I had to put it down. So within that eight years that I put it down and then started it again, mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin was no longer the only iconic figure that had been killed and resonated with us for police brutality. Mm-hmm. We saw Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, the names go on and on. Mm-hmm. Maya Angelou, who I had interviewed for the book, was no longer with us. Cosby, obviously, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, in the circumstance he finds himself in. And so... I said, the idea is too good not to do. So Mm -hmm. what I did is I got 40-plus of our biggest influencers and leaders today from all different corners. Mm -hmm. So I've talked to literally people like Maxine Waters or including Maxine Waters, Stacey Abrams, Eric Holder. Then we got D.L. Hughley, Mm -hmm. T.I., 
uh, Killer Mike, Angela Rye, Harry Belafonte. I mean, the list goes on and on. Michael Steele, mm-hmm. former chair of the Republican Party. Chair, sure, right, um, mm-hmm. We've got um, April Rain, who started Oscar So White. Um, mm-hmm. We got Miss um, Burke, who started um, the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get a broad spectrum of African-Americans. And what I did is I interviewed all of them, some of the usual suspects, too, Sharpton and Mm -hmm. Mark Morial. I interviewed all of them. And then the book reads as if we were all in the same room. Oh, that's interesting. So it reads as a conversation. And each chapter is a different topic. Oh, I see. So you choose a different topic and you have people interspersing their take on that. Exactly right. Oh, that's real interesting. Yeah. So what are some of the topics that you cover? So uh, the first topic is state of black America. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to get people's idea of where we are. And, and Michael Eric Dyson mm-hmm. is one of the people in the book. And he says— He could take up the whole book. He brother. could take up the whole book. <laughs> he was the longest transcript I had. He's like, brother, take a breath. <laughs> just take a breath. <laughs> uh, but, but we talk about the state of black America and mm-hmm. where I find ourselves. But we have a reflection of the Obama years. Mm. We look at the Trump years. We look at the political muscle of 2020 and what that means. We have a chapter on black girl magic and uh-huh. and, and where black women are today. We have the chapter on uh, the Medea dilemma, looking at black images in the media. We take a look at the news media and, and how we are portrayed in that. We have a chapter called Am I Black Enough for You? Mm-hmm. Looking at the uh, authenticity of being black and who gives you your black card and all right. of that. And so we look at education and and um, the wealth gap that continues to grow in this country and mm-hmm. we continue to be left behind. You know, we're fooled by the fact that we see five or 10 or 100 black people doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. But I hasten to um, suggest to people Many people found Robert Smith last year when he wiped away the debt for the graduating class of Mm -hmm. Morehouse and found out that he was worth $5 billion, Mm -hmm. richest black person in America. Mm -hmm. But then if you juxtapose him to Jeff Bezos, who's still worth $120-plus million after a divorce, Mm -hmm. you look at the wealth gap. Even at that level, it's tremendous. Mm -hmm. And so there are many, many issues that I think we need to take new narratives on and have new discussions. And then the hope is that this book spurs you to action. It's not enough just to talk about. I can't tell you how many town hall meetings, how many panels I've been Uh on that were well-meaning, but never went anywhere. Uh You know, and I I mentioned Roland a few minutes ago, Roland Martin, and I say we both do fewer panels than we used to, Uh but we used to tell them, you know, the organizations, you need to come back in a year and find out what you did that was spawned from this panel. Right. Like in my business, <laughs> like I always consulted when I see white people talking too much about, we got to do something about diversity and all that. I'm like, nigga, hire somebody. That's, That's All right. you have to do is hire somebody. You really don't have to have a conversation. You really just need to call personnel. You know? <laughs> or, or the <laughs> fact that the conversation you need to have is with personnel. That's right. And start hiring people. Or the fact that in yeah. in in corporations, and we talk about this in the book, whenever they have diversity training, it's always black people in there. Oh, completely. It's never yes. white people in there. I go, you got the wrong people in here. Yes. We understand the dynamics <laughs> and the know. problems. Right? Go get a white middle manager uh, who doesn't know the name of all five of his black employees. I remember when I, you know, was first running shows and stuff and the press would say, there, how many black writers do you have? I said, ask friends. 
Because me alone, I have more than Friends, Frasier, and Seinfeld and all those shows. <laughs> they have zero, you know. <laughs> they asked me when we were doing O.J. Simpson, could I be objective as a black reporter talking to O.J. Simpson? And wow. I said, well, did you ask Barbara Walters, was she objective when she talked to Mark Furman? No, yeah. you didn't ask her that. Don't ask me that. Wow. You know, why do you assume because I'm black I can't be fair when you right. never, ever ask white folks that? Yeah, but they're not wrong. Come on. No, no, no I'm just not kidding. <laughs> what, is your, uh, what is your feeling about the Obama years? Or is there some extrapolation from the conversations that you got yeah. out of that that maybe is at odds with your feelings about it? Or you no, I think or? most people felt the same way. Some were more critical than others, though mm-hmm. most were not critical in general. Mm-hmm. But I think for me— I look at it to say that he figured out the combination. Mm-hmm. I thought I would die and never see a black president. Right. I remember flying to Chicago, and this mm-hmm. is in the book. I remember flying to Chicago two or three weeks before he was going to make his announcement, but the rumbles were there, and everybody knew that he was shooting to go to the when land he, of Lincoln. and When he was going to uh, run, make, right? Make mm-hmm. the announcement that he right. was going to run. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting across from him as I am with you now mm-hmm. and asking him, I said, you know, Senator, we knew each other a little bit. We'd been on the phone before and sure. met here and there, but I didn't know him well. I said, Senator, you know, there are rumors that you're looking at running for the highest office in the land. I know you won't tell me today, but give me a sense of what you're thinking. And well, Ed, and then he began to go to his Obama. And you know how people talk to you and you're not really listening. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing. I was like, yeah, whatever, man. Just don't embarrass us, bro. Because wow. you ain't winning this thing. But, you know, you go wow. on out there and that's what I'm thinking in my head. You didn't and think he had a chance. I so. didn't think he had it. I didn't think the country was ready. Mm-hmm. I did not think, not that he wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. He certainly was impressive. I mean, the, you know, the moment you met him, you're like, this, this dude's impressive. Sure. So it wasn't about him. It was about the country. Mm-hmm. But he figured it out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, history was made that day. The day that he was inaugurated or elected, mm-hmm. you know, his history was set. In terms of the presidency, you know, I mean, he faced the kind of obstruction no other president prior to that has ever faced. Mm-hmm. But that being said, while I love uh, the image of his family there mm-hmm. and appreciate all of what that meant to us as a people, and, and, and I'm talking about Americans who are well-thinking and fair, mm-hmm. not just black folk. Sure. I also believe politically— He did not do enough for African-Americans, including the obstruction. I understood what he would face. Right. But as you say— But politics is quid pro quo, right? Most presidents are going to face that to some extent. That's right. So, But if I give you 95-plus, 90-whatever the percentage was, um, particularly in the second term, give me something, Doc. Mm -hmm. Give me something for that. Go out on a limb for me. Yeah, people are hoping that— they, like <laughs> the way I joked about it was, Obama's white side governed in the first uh, <laughs> right in the first four years, so maybe his black side would right. govern in the second four years. You know, and we're waiting for the black Obama to come out or whatever. And we saw him yeah. come out every blue moon, but it wasn't legislatively. It was right. It was singing. Al you know, Green. singing Al Green. Right. It was you know being compassionate mm-hmm. at Reverend Pinckney's funeral. It was all of those things that kind of like like the equivalent to virtue signaling in some way yes you know almost culture signaling but but you're absolutely right there was a disconnect and you know you could argue many presidents 
when you look at the presidents that actually did something for the black community directly, and I, I'm trying to remember what the last, can you remember what the last thing <laughs> that was a direct saying, the black community definitely needs this, and as president, I'm doing it. I don't remember it because I was only about eight or nine years old, but people that I respect and, you know, know history talk about what Nixon did, mm-hmm. um, you know, for uh, enterprise zones and businesses and, and the like. Affirmative and, action. And, and, and affirmative action. And yeah. so— It's ironic that Nixon— Ironically, the last you know, and I'm sure there are some things that we are forgetting, but in mm-hmm. terms of just monumental legislation that really affected— yeah. A large group of African Americans. You can find legislation that hits mm-hmm. two or three middle class black folk and helps mm-hmm. us, or maybe you know brings poverty stricken folk to f- less poverty, but they're still impoverished. Sure. But um, and the crime bill arguably had the opposite effect. That's that's exactly but right. But it was intended and, to actually help a lot of poor black areas that were riddled with crime. Like the, I felt the intentions were good because a lot of. The crime bill, a lot of that came from the black community as well, right. black leaders asking for some help. And the irony is some mm-hmm. of the legislation that Bill Clinton, who some people, you know, uh, gave I never the did. title I to, I never, I never, did, yeah. never felt president, him yeah. to be the black first black. I thought he was comfortable around black I people. I thought he was good playing the sax and I right? him. But, yeah. I, and I think if black people find white people who are truly comfortable around us, mm-hmm. we love them, right? Mm-hmm. We love Tina Marie. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, beyond her Tina talent. Tina Marie. Beyond her talent. You category. know, she was just comfortable, oh, right? Tina she was Marie was fantastic, around. yeah. Uh, what's his name? Gary Owens, the comedian. I mean, you know, there's certain yeah. people that we're cool with. We're not mad. That they're comfortable with right. us, mm-hmm. right? They don't need another white person in the mm-hmm. room to feel co- So that was yeah. Bill Clinton. Yeah. But legislatively, you know, George Bush had higher people in his cabinet to more important positions than Bill Clinton did. Absolutely. So we've got to become more educated and not just excited Mm -hmm. that somebody invites us to the White House Christmas party or the Rose Garden. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those people. I'm not a partisan when it comes to that type of thing. I acknowledge the importance of Powell and Rice, you know, in in what Bush did. Like to me, I'm like, hey, any ways— we can make progress. Right. I don't care which president does it, right. to be honest with you. I mean, I acknowledge the—even though I'm very anti-Trump and, you know, I want to see him not get reelected, I acknowledge what he did in criminal justice, you know, and some of those things. He actually—I think that's one of the genuine things he actually cares about is that issue because the people who mean something to him have brought it to him. You know, it's one yeah. of those non-political issues with him. You know, I, I, I don't. I don't know. The only thing that I would say to that is, I don't think he has a genuine bone in his body. I really don't. Well, I, that's true, but but I do think that he listens to certain people. Yes, that I you agree. Know, with. And because Ivanka cared about that issue, yes, that he that listened to it. But yeah, you mentioned when we started. Mm-hmm. You know, my kind of old school journalistic. Um, road that I've traveled and it being very kind of down the middle and not mm-hmm. letting you know what my opinion is. This is the first time with this man in the White House that uh-huh. I've ever said, I don't give a shit about that. Mm-hmm. He's He is incompetent. Mm-hmm. He should not hold that position. And it's dangerous. Right. It's dangerous. We talk about it generationally. And this is what I keep telling people because I'm not enamored with the Democratic choices Mm -hmm. for this election, but I keep reminding people, Trump told us the other day when he had a press conference, uh, I'm going to get reelected and we're appointing these federal judges and we got a lot more in the pipeline. Right. And those are people who are affecting you, your children, and your grandchildren. Absolutely. And it's frightening. 
It's frightening. It's a quiet, conservative agenda that is making its way through this country. And we're, we're asleep on that because we keep looking at the wizard. But he's an idiot. Yeah. It's these other people that are not idiotic. Let's Mitch McConnell, yeah. That are dangerous. I don't think it's that quiet. I mean, those, uh, what is 195 judges he's uh, gone through in the federal court? It's kind of insane. Is there any, what is your take on Biden? You know, I don't like that Biden is like, well, I just got to wait for the black vote because I got all yeah. these black people that are going to vote for me. It I, doesn't It doesn't work like that. I think Joe missed his window. And, and yeah. God bless him. Um, 2016? Yeah. Yeah. God bless him. We know what what he was struggling with with his son. And Absolutely. All, and, and I now, get why you decided not yeah. to run. But I think that was your window. Yeah. Just like I think Deval Patrick, who I like a lot, should have run in 2016 just to get his name out nationally. Right. And then run again. And now to enter so late. Now, people have no, people they have don't no, have any idea who he is. As soon as you said that name, people who were listening and said, who? Go, who? <laughs> That's exactly right. And he, mm-hmm. he is an extraordinary intellect. Yeah. He is, uh, in many fronts, you know, the same person uh, as—and and maybe a, a bit more understanding because Barack Obama had such an atypical life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deval Patrick may be even more understanding than Barack Obama with some of the ills and problems that— mm-hmm the everyday African-American suffers through. Mm-hmm. I think um, Obama brought a lot of his rhetoric, actually, during uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. I think he took from, mm-hmm. from Deval mm-hmm. Patrick when he was running Massachusetts or whatever. Do you think we can have another black president? Or do you think, as Bill Maher joked, Obama was the last black president? <laughs> I don't think he'll mm-hmm. be necessarily the last, but I think it's like the Academy Awards. So, you know, you had Hattie McDaniel mm-hmm. and then— Black folk didn't win for a long time. And then Sidney Poitier won, and then mm-hmm. black folk didn't win for a long time. And so I think that is what will happen. I don't necessarily think we're going to see—I wouldn't be shocked mm-hmm. necessarily, but I would not be shocked if we don't see one for another, you know, five or six elections. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris didn't register in the way a lot of people thought she might. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not enough just to say as black people, well, we we deserve a black person. Well, we deserve someone who is looking out after our best interests. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be black. It's a plus if they're black. But I mean, um, Lyndon Johnson started his career as a Dixiecrat. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. Civil rights bill. And, but he was right he thing. was politically pragmatic. He, Completely. And he understood what Absolutely. he had to do. That wasn't altruism. I mean, I think he got he, a and better he understanding. To, he had to talk more Democrats than signing exactly right. than he did Republicans, actually. That's exactly right. So, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I think it's just a question of getting the right black person there. Mm-hmm. You know, because as black people, it's always the black tax, and there are always these nuances we have to have. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, had she been darker? Would black folk have, you know, embraced her a little quicker than yeah. than we did? Or would it have been the same outcome? Had Michelle Obama been light, would Barack Obama be as beloved? Because, so I mean, but there's some reality yeah. to that, right? Yeah. I, I think in terms of leader, like, I even joke that, look, I voted for Obama because he's black. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was good enough for me. The fact that I agreed with him was a bonus, right. you know, as far as I was concerned. But I said, but the next brother to come, you better have something, you know. And I think even though I joked about that, I think there's a different level of scrutiny because there's not a novelty factor anymore. You're not that's right. breaking a barrier. And so who are you speaking to? What are you bringing to the table that's going to distinguish you? And and I think um, the cultural issues to me, the racial cultural issues don't have the same kind of weight that they used to as much as as the um, left-right issues do. 
you know, and even the party itself is dealing with its pull towards progressivism and moderation more than servicing, I think, these factions of the party. Right. That's we, what it feels like. We also like have to, to— With to, even young blacks, too, who are more interested in progressivism in terms of of helping black than right. just that issue That's itself. Right. They want to do it through progressive means. And, and we have to know? make sure, though, that we control the narrative. I find it interesting that they have all these polls about black folk not liking uh, Pete Buttigieg. And my thing is we don't know him. I don't know of any black people that simply don't like him because mm-hmm. he's gay or just don't like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet these polls say, oh, you're only polling at 1% or 2%. Well, nobody knows him. Mm-hmm. And I think if he goes and speaks to black people, those numbers will increase. Yeah, you know, there's a question of blacks and homophobia, but the entire black community is not homophobic. There is factions of the black community that are. I don't know that they're any bigger or worse than that we'd find in the majority community. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're allowing the news to paint that picture for us that, you know, black mm-hmm. America doesn't like Pete Buttigieg. And I just feel like they don't know the dude at mm-hmm. all. Little Gary, Indiana, small town mayor, don't know who he is. Got to find out, you know, who he is. You knew who Sanders is. You know who Biden is. You know, know, they don't like Steyer either. I mean, there are a lot of people that we don't register with, but Mm -hmm. there's this kind of underplay of we don't like him and, and there's that. Black folk don't like homosexuality factor that's come into play there. And it's interesting because, you know, go to church on Sunday and see who's leading your choir. Yeah. You know, we like Billy Porter enough. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. I mean, look, there's an element. Here's the thing that I, the thing I feel about that is blacks traditionally have not quite been representative of the left, even though they've been on the left. My historical application of that is the whole civil rights movement was not a leftist movement. It was a human movement. But it got caught up in the left because what piggybacked on it was the anti-war movement, which was a leftist movement, you know. And people have conflated the two. Civil rights movement is a humanist movement. That's you right. know, it's not a left or right movement, not at all. We've always you know? been conservative Both the left and the right. liberals. We've correct. always been conservative That is liberals. absolutely correct, you know. So— so, and I'm talking about very broadly, you know, blacks as a group, because blacks as a group, church was very important to them, to blacks culturally. And there's a lot of things in the church that go with that, yeah. whether we agree with that or not. Yeah. You know, the ramifications of that kind of religious conservatism that definitely is still there. But I think it's it's a broader problem than blacks. I think Buttigieg does have a problem with it. I think people, and I think the left is going to have to face this, that People aren't going to have a problem with the idea of gay, but when they see two men stand together, they're going to have to reckon with how they really feel about that. There's no question and about it. And that's going to be a reckoning. There's no question you know? about it. But that's America in general. That's America in general. That's but, America but in general. But the right doesn't have to worry about it. No. Yeah. They don't. It's the they left don't. that is going to have to have to reckon. But it's interesting moment. because, you know, you right. keep hearing about how he dealt with law enforcement and blacks in his city. Not an issue. But I don't hear those same people talk about Bloomberg. Yeah. And law enforcement in New York City. It's out there. That story's out there. But they don't say, well, everybody's talking about that. Yeah, black people in New York are talking about that because they lived under it and they saw what it was. And it's not enough just to say, oops, sorry, my bad about stop and frisk. Yeah, that that issue with Buttigieg, I don't think is going to be a determining factor in getting the black vote because it's not a it's not a big enough sample. But I do agree with you. It it would be difficult for America, quite frankly, to see that picture. 
I'm telling you, did you see the woman in Iowa who yeah. was interviewed? She said, Ooh, wait, so hold on know. a second. What? He's what? <laughs> <laughs> but that told a lot of wait, things huh, right there. Yes, yeah, this is America. Yeah, this yeah. is the this That's is, your voter. Yes. That's you your know, voter, America. That's voting. And this is a Democrat voting. Wait, wait, hold on. He's, <laughs> he's now what? I, I want my So what does back. that mean? <laughs> so they actually have sex? Yeah. Like, yeah. what is, like, she's learning what gay means for the she first time. She went like yeah. she was going to Walmart and said, I want to return this. I got my receipt. I would actually love to see Buttigieg <laughs> at the head of the ticket just for that reason, just to see how America reacts yeah. to that. It would be it would be fascinating. And the question for me yeah. is, are you going to have to put an African-American or a person of color in the number two slot? I don't know, because to me, I think the left is overreacting to the loss the last time. And I think they're not going to tell us this out loud, but they're going to say, we can't have a nigga on the ticket because people <laughs> voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. As I call it the unblackening. I got Trump coming in as the unblackening. Is, is but it, it, it's a question because if you put someone like Stacey Abrams who floated a trial Stacey balloon, Abrams is in a different category. She yeah. would be that person who might, in fact, excite the black electorate in a way that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker did not. And right. that may combat those wild right-wingers who are right. going to go. And so that would be an interesting dynamic to see. Who, who would be the best combo platter of that, do you think? Boy, I don't like, know, man. At the top of the ticket. I don't know because I don't— Is there anybody that comes I'm out not, to you at the top no. of the and ticket that's what, that resonates? that's what concerns Nobody's me. Nobody's really resonating, right? That's what concerns me because if you look the last 50 years, mm-hmm. save Jimmy Carter, right. the only time Democrats have won, you had a wildly charismatic person. Whether you liked them or not, they were charismatic. Although— at the top of the ticket. Carter was charismatic when he first came out. Remember that smile he was he had? different. Well, but remember, he was Jimmy Carter and all his he was He yeah. was interesting. He was unique. Yeah. Well, it was against Gerald Ford, who had no <laughs> well, personality. Okay, okay. That's what I mean. <laughs> so if you, <laughs> yes. listen, if you juxtapose those two. <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. And we're comparing. He was the smiling yes, peanut farmer. That smile went away after yeah. a few years, but I, I just, that's what he was known as when he first came so out. So let yeah. me say then, movie star heart. charismatic. Yes, well. Right? Yeah, so let me change that for you. Reagan had that in spades. Clinton But I don't mean Republicans. Republicans are a different animal, but for Democrats. We like that, and it's been only men, so I'll say we like that guy who when you walk in the room, everybody stops. Mm -hmm. So Clinton had it, you know, and Mm -hmm. we elected him. JFK had it. Mm -hmm. We elected him. Obama had it. We elected him. Mm -hmm. You know, and everybody else, Dukakis didn't have it. I mean, you can go down the list. Mm. We just don't like that smart, nerdy guy on the Democratic side. Or girl, Hillary. That's who that Hillary is. In yeah. that sense. She has some other issues, though. She's just, yeah. that whole campaign was a fiasco, a dumpster fire, as they say. Oh, man. Yeah. So so many forensics. They need a whole political CSI to really, uh, <laughs> to get that out. Well, did you have a, a favorite chapter in here in Conversations with Black? One that you thought, man, that chapter was amazing. You know, that, that one really uh, is is a reason why people should yeah, really read that you know what? Book. I think mm-hmm. less of a chapter as it was just the candor that people came to okay. the table with. Great. That I appreciated. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I mean, to get this group of 40 people was mm-hmm. a daunting task, even though I knew most of them, you know, um, mm-hmm. was not friendly with all of them by any means, acquaintances right. with most. Sure. But um, I've, I've held on. Some you had to pretend you liked, like Sharpton. <laughs> <you know. laughs> but... Um, <laughs> What I appreciated was the candor. I, I mm-hmm. don't think some of their responses would have been the same had I been sitting and doing this for television. Mm. I think it would okay. have been, you know, slightly different, a bit more guarded. Yeah. I did most of them on the phone. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people were calling me from their cars. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. just to get in these people's calendars, I mean, that's the made caliber even, of people that it, we do have. Do you think that made it even more casual? You know, I think so. More candid? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can recall a couple of people literally, you know, we, the phone kept dropping because they were going in and out of Manhattan mm-hmm. or, you know, up in the mountains or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever they may have been. And so— uh, and I think there was a trust factor everybody had with me in knowing that I was going to deliver it and not change the tone and tenor of how we talked about it or what it was. Mm-hmm. I explained to them that I would be puzzle piecing it together as if we were, you know, having a conversation. So I had to be clear that the the delivery of what you gave me when I juxtaposed it to the next person's comment didn't change what you were saying or what they were saying. The meaning of it because it's, yeah. it's yeah. kind of out of so context. It's delicate, yeah. In a yeah, different it's a delicate context. balance. Yeah. But that's no different. And I told the publisher this. That's what you do when you do a news piece. So mm-hmm. 60 Minutes has to do that. When yeah. they put a news piece together, you have the transcript, you look, sure. you puzzle piece it together. And so in that respect, it was easy for me because I've been doing that mm-hmm. for 30 years. Right. But I, I was very careful mm-hmm. in saying, okay, the context in what you delivered that statement in does not change when I marry it to this person's response. That's great. I've, that actually kind of happened to me unintentionally, I'm sure, but Henry Louis Gates, when I was doing mm-hmm. the Bernie Mac show, he came by and it was great having him there. And, you know, he followed me around and we talked for a long time and he, he put me in his, one of his books, conversations type of thing. Um, but, all the questions were missing in there, and it was just my response. And some of it seemed like, yeah. so, I'm like, why am I talking about that thing? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. but he asked me a question about that. It seemed, some of it seemed like I was just rambling on about something, you know, but, you know, nobody cares about that. That's just me caring about it, you know, that yeah. type of thing. But, but, it doesn't but make there's context think. to it. Context yeah. is important. You, it is. Uh, I think about this when people, like sports, this happens all the time. Where it's just LeBron said da 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 da. Well, the truth is, you asked LeBron a question and he answered it. You right. know, and many times people are answering questions, and many times the questions have the answer embedded in it, and they want you to agree or disagree, and they act like you made that statement. You know, which yeah, and and you've got to be really yeah. careful in terms of your intention and how the receiver gets that. I mean, we right. saw that with the Gail King piece. Yeah. Right. I don't believe Gail's intention was to knock Kobe down or knock oh, another no, no, black no. man down or anything was like that. Very respectful, yeah. But maybe not the best vehicle to try yeah. to talk about that subject with Lisa. You know, if you were doing an overview of his life, yeah. that's one thing. She just to do. And I understood what her. she yeah. wanted to do. I understood and, and all transparency, I've talked to her. So I understood what she was attempting to do. Mm-hmm. But sometimes your intention doesn't come out the way or in the Mm -hmm. end result isn't what you had hoped for. So I knew that that was a real possibility. And I was, I tried my best to be very, very careful Mm -hmm. about how I put that together. Well, congratulations, man. Um, Thank you. Are you out on the tour? uh, I am out on the tour going Mm -hmm. uh, city to city to city. Uh, We did uh, peace in New York and Washington. Uh, Sonny Hostin from The View Mm -hmm. hosted me in uh, New York and April Ryan. White House correspondent did a little nice reception for me in D.C. And um, heading now, uh, we'll be in um, New York, back to New York, back to D.C., Jersey, Philly, Detroit, you know, the that's whole thing. That's why nine. you changed it to the tracksuit. You, you got a lot of running. He came in here all dapper and everything and said, Larry, can I change out of this? 
<laughs> now he's in his Adidas tracks. Yeah, the real Ed came out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, Ed, it's so great having you here. Thanks Same for here, brother. I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully we'll see you uh, soon in something. Yeah, or? we're working on something. You know, And you and I were talking about this before right. we cut the mics on. In this business, and I don't even say a signed contract. I wait till you know, you're mm-hmm. really doing it day one Completely. to see if it's real. I mean, I've had yeah. contracts sent to me, signed, and I'm getting ready to sign it back. And they said, right. oh, hold on, hold on. Right. So, um, but we are working on something. A, a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, man, you know, we need you out here. We want you out here. Mm-hmm. And and I've not lost that desire to do something. So Great. if it's the right vehicle, I'm going to do it. Awesome. Ed yeah. Gordon, Conversations in Black, everybody. He's out there. He's in the tracksuit. He's running around America. <laughs> Maybe you'll be in one of these conversations. You never know. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, man.